for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. What does a catfish, traditionally a bottom dweller, have to do with the American dream? Everything. My motto is, don't stop chasing your dreams. And that was my dream, to grow those catfish, which I did. For trailblazing farmer Ed Scott Jr., born and raised in the Mississippi Delta, those bewhiskered fish have driven his family fight to win economic independence. Julian Rankin, author of a new book, Catfish Dream, brings us this story of black success in the face of white supremacy. In this story, World War II General George C. Patton makes an appearance, and so does James Meredith, the man who integrated the University of Mississippi, for this is a great American story. And when you got to look at this, if you're on the bottom, what way is it for you to go but up? In the 1980s, southern farmers couldn't dig catfish ponds fast enough. Farmers, especially in the Mid-South, were looking for an alternative to raising traditional row crops, like rice and beans, subject to swings of market volatility. The Mississippi Delta, Ed Scott Jr.'s backyard, proved an ideal place to raise fish in ponds, dug out of the water-retaining clay. By 1995, Delta farmers would grow more than 80% of all catfish raised in the U.S. The catfish boom was on. But, and this is a big but, while lenders and ag industry leaders encouraged white farmers to convert cotton fields to catfish ponds, they failed to share these possibilities with black farmers like Ed Scott. They talked about how, how I was how profitable fish was, but he ain't never told us we need to go in it. Not no black man. In the 1970s and 80s, the United States Department of Agriculture heavily subsidized farming through what was then called the Farmer's Home Administration or FMHA. Whites who could afford to dig catfish ponds benefited from government loans. But in southern communities with a legacy of white supremacy, local agency officers did not distribute the money equitably. They aimed to protect white economic advantages. Farming was a revolutionary act. It was just, you know, the whites had been in power. Even though the African-Americans made up the majority of the population in Mississippi Delta still do. That's investigative reporter Jerry Mitchell. The whites had been in power. And so when African-Americans began to take economic power or political power, all those things, there was a tremendous amount of resentment. I mean, you can even go in the Delta today and sense some of that. The Scots had amassed more than a 1,000 acres over multiple generations in Lafleur and Bolivar counties. Like his father, a sharecropper turned landowner, Scott had long borrowed money from local banks. In 1978, Scott went to FMHA instead. He asked them for the money to dig and stock catfish ponds so he could join the move to aquaculture. That simple request, an application for a loan that should have been available to any and all, 
put in motion a battle for justice that would last the rest of Ed Scott's life and would end in the largest civil rights lawsuit settlement in the history of the nation. They wouldn't give me no money. They had bill upon and didn't give me none. Despite a lack of funding, Ed Scott and his son Isaac dug their own ponds beginning in 1980. We build those ponds mostly during the summer and winter months. We got our crop in the field, we work on them. And then when in the winter time after we get our crop out of the field, we go back to work on them. Once they had the ponds excavated, Scott went back for money to stock them. But the local FMHA supervisor said no. So I left him and went over his head and went to Jackson. Ed Scott speaking in 1989. It would take $400,000 to stock them ponds, feed them out, and buy all the equipment for the fish. They gave me 150000 And they just gave me enough money to get me in trouble and thought that was it. But I didn't let that stop me. I kept going. So now Ed Scott has his catfish ponds dug. And he has them stocked with fish, too. Maybe they aren't stocked as well as he wanted, but fish swim through his waters, eating feed and gaining weight. Now he needs to harvest and process them. He can handle the harvest, but he needs a company with the right sort of specialized equipment to behead them, pull their guts out, cut them into fillets, freeze them, and get them to market. As the Delta catfish industry blossomed, large processors came online. Perhaps the biggest at the time was Delta Pride in nearby Indianola, which opened in 1981, just as Scott's first crop of fish were maturing. When I built those ponds across the road out there, it got enough money to grow those fish up to where I thought they was nearby ready for the market, I went looking for something to do with them, something to process them. And at that time, if you didn't have no stock, you didn't know about processing no fish, baby. Delta Pride was a co-op owned by a group of men who shared the expenses and profits of the processing plant. Each owned stock in the enterprise. If a farmer didn't own stock, he didn't get his fish processed. Scott needed stock in Delta Pride. He enlisted his lawyer to buy some. His lawyer, of course, was white. I called a lawyer and asked him about the stock. He said, you know, I talk straight up with you, don't you? I said, yep. He said, according to the color of your skin, I couldn't get you no stock. Ed Scott knew that if he was going to process his fish, he'd have to build a plant of his own. I said to, to my son, I said, well, that ain't going to stop me. I said, Let me, let's go down here to Illinois and go through one of them plants, see what they're doing, and we can't do it. I said, I'll process my own fish. I didn't say that neat, but I said it. The secretary for Scott's lawyer had set up the plant tour. The secretary told the plant that two men wanted a tour. She didn't say two black men. If she had, Scott maintains, they probably wouldn't have let them in. But when we walked in the end of that, there's two of that plant, they saw we were black. We sat there 45 minutes before anybody said one word. Scott didn't budge. In World War II, he had held the line on the freezing Western Front with General Patton. In 1965, he had joined the ranks at Selma to walk triumphantly across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. In 1966, when James Meredith's March Against Fear passed through the Delta, his wife had cooked and he had carried food to activists. Inspired by the civil rights movement, he was well-versed in the proactive tactic of the sit-in. So he sat. Some of the key leaders uh, of the civil rights movement in Mississippi 
were World War II veterans. And so they went and fought in World War II and, you know, fought the Nazis uh, and came back to fight racism all over again, you know, in the form of Jim Crow that barred African-Americans from voting booths, from restaurants, from restrooms even. When they came home from war, they were just determined to fight. At Delta Pride, Scott waited. Finally, a man named Larry appeared to give Scott and Isaac the tour. Isaac had warned his father not to say anything about his plans to process his own fish. But Scott, matter-of-fact as ever, wasn't going to tell any lies. On the way through the plant, Larry asked me, said, Y'all got in the pond? I said, Yep, kept walking. A few minutes, he said, You got any stocking in the plant? I said, Nope. And he said, You got any line that went in the live hauler? I said, Nope. He said, well, what the hell are you going to do with your fish then, eat them? I said, yeah, something like that. I'm not here now. See what you're doing. I can't do. I'm going to clean my own fish. When we come back, Scott opens the catfish plant and writes his name into history. Hi. It's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them Gravy Said Hey! Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned business in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has been making cast iron cookware since 1896. Lodge Cast Iron Camp Dutch Ovens are the first choice for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their skillets and griddles are perfect for searing steaks and roasting vegetables at home. And professional chefs from Atlanta to Los Angeles stock their kitchens with Lodge seasoned steel skillets and griddles. No matter what or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles, just for you. For over 100 years of meals and memories, and for Lodge Cast Iron support of this podcast, we say thanks. My name is Eva Brooks, and I was supervisor of the plant. My name is Unnerve, and I was one of the supervisors of the plant. <laughs> My name is Etsy Watson, and I was uh, the worker my name is Lily Watson. I began in the plant as a skinner. I later went into the office, became the secretary, accountant, the office manager, and the shipping. We work really good as a family. I know even when it was thundering and lightning. So you looking at the one that he depend on, we want to dependable. We at LaFleur Bolivar Catfish Processing Plant believe in quality professional service and reliability just as we value our catfish we value our customers and we'll go an extra mile just to please you the dependables 
Ed Scott's Corps of Female Employees worked long hours to keep Scott's catfish plant operating. They lived nearby and worked any and all shifts, in snow and storm, mud and guts. Essie Watson went into labor at the skinning table. Her water broke mid-fish. When the four women got back together to reminisce over catfish dinner with the Scott family, they picked up the conversation where they'd left off back in the 80s. They spoke over one another and finished each other's sentences. Ed Scott's grandson, Daniel Scott, just a boy when the plan opened in 1983, remembers them doing everything the men could do and more. You know, I was little then, but I remember y'all was some Spanish old ladies when I was born. But we did, we did, we got to do what see, you make us like that. We, we load fish, we pack fish, we did. How many pound boxes? Thirty pound boxes. Thirty pound from sixty pound boxes. And we throw them boxes like a man, you know, like 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 you know, the atmosphere was celebratory. They staged a ribbon cutting, made speeches, and competed to see who could fillet fish the fastest. Eva Brooks won the honor. They were they were uh, timing us on who can who can skin faster, faster and who can fillet faster. I was the winner on the fillet table. And that was just for fun, like a competition. <laughs> well, we didn't get a prize. We did, it, was just, it was just for fun. It was yeah. fun. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. But it, it was good though. It was good. So we, had, so we first started out doing it by hand, no, no machine. We did everything by hand. In the beginning, the plant wasn't automated. Even though it wasn't an automated process that he had inside his plant, the workers themselves had enough pride and respect into what he was doing and who the man was that they figured out a way to actually streamline and get those orders out, no matter what size they was. African-American workers staffed the larger processing plants. This was different. There, when minimum wage employees suffered carpal tunnel from repetitive motion. In some plants, the unisex bathrooms lacked stall doors. Workers reported that managers sexually assaulted them. At Scott's Fresh Catfish, built atop the bones of an old tractor shed, the dependables pulled viscera and sawed heads, just like the black workers in other catfish processing plants. The difference was the dependables worked for a black boss who respected them and put them in charge. Because they trusted us, too. Even when they were gone, we were such family that we ran the place when they were gone, when their own children came. And I don't want to ask the, ask the secretary, too. He was a person like that. Whatever he said, what he, he done, we did. Yeah. He had no question about it. He said, why ain't worried about it? They got it. It all came back to economics, Lily Watson stressed. The best thing I can remember about this, Mr. Scott brought jobs to the Mississippi Delta in our area because we didn't have to travel far. We didn't live far from the plant. And we were really excited about having jobs. I had been in Mississippi three years, and I didn't have a job. Scott's wife, Edna, contributed to the cause, too. Out in rural LaFleur County, where country churches counted as mile markers, midday restaurant lunches were hard to come by. So Edna Scott and Ed Scott built a kitchen and a dining room out back, in addition to the family home. Edna Ruth Scott served plant workers and surrounding farmers, building the menus from her garden patch. It was 
Miss Sandy Ruth created her own oh, meal, her meal, her own batter meal. And it was good. It was awesome. And as a result of them opening up the kitchen, I learned how she had a famous angel biscuit. So I got that recipe and I still carry it on today. Um, but she was a superb cook. Uh, cakes, peas, everything. She just cooked all this stuff. Catfish was always on the menu, fried in Edna's signature cornmeal mix. In 2013, 90-year-old Edna sat in her daughter Walena's kitchen and took me back. Yes, I cooked for uh, my husband farming people seven years. When you clean up today, you think about what, am I, what will I have tomorrow. Most time I plan my meal today for tomorrow. We fed in many people. The Scots vertically integrated. Their catfish went from the pond to the plate, carried by trusted hands at every station. They leveraged their black land, amassed and passed down, scraped together by the families of Ed Scott and Edna Scott to build black wealth. But even as Scott was building and opening his plant, predatory forces were massing, determined to bring these systems of self-determination to an end. Power has long been rooted in land ownership, says Jerry Mitchell, speaking of a Mississippi civil rights martyr. I know, I don't think it's any shock that Meg or Evers family owned the property they lived on. The problem for others who didn't have that, they could be run out of town. You had all these people that that, that kind of began to coalesce around this idea of self-determination and we want to be able to control our own destiny. In 1983, the local FMHA office turned down Scott's operating loan. Scott owed a few thousand dollars, but that wasn't the problem. Carrying debt in farming was as natural as wearing boots into the field. The problem was that Scott's persistence challenged white economic authority, recalls his son Isaac Scott. We had to open a bill before FHA even though we were building And they got mad about that. They didn't like that. One reason they didn't like my dad, because he was his own person. He did what he knew was best for his farm. When the government quit securing the loans, local banks foreclosed on Scott, tract after tract over the course of 1983. They took everything but the ponds, the plant, and the home. They even came for Scott's catfish, then swimming in those ponds, the ones he had fed with some of their government money. After the government turned its back, Scott's only option was to become a full-time processor and caterer. His ponds sat empty. His farmland was bought up at discount by that very same government. He kept the plant going by securing minority contracts, but it was only a matter of time, Lily Watson remembers. And it was real sad because as you asked about it and you talked about people was trying to get him out of business, oftentimes he didn't get the finances that he needed to continue to grow his own fish. So what he'd start doing is buying the fish or getting it on credit, and that only lasts for so long. And they would come and they would bring the fish and bring the fish and bring the fish. And uh, it was good we processed for a while. Unable to source the funding or the fish to fill their orders, the Scots closed the plant around 1990. Scott fought to get his land back through a government program, but his request was buried and ignored. It must have gotten lost or fallen into the trash, the agency told the family. 
1997, the Scott family joined a class action suit against USDA called Pigford v. Glickman, which claimed that local agency supervisors had systematically discriminated against black farmers across the nation, frustrating their loans and trapping them in debt. Scott joined the ranks of 22,000 black farmers who alleged discrimination. Complaints had piled up unanswered. C-SPAN has been inviting members of the cabinet to spend time with you to talk about their priorities for the coming year. We're very pleased to have the Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman, at our table this morning. We were sued, uh, that is the Department of Agriculture was sued in a class action by a group of black farmers around the country alleging discrimination. Uh, we have settled that suit. Uh, this is not a happy chapter in the history of the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, judge Paul Friedman, U.S. District Judge for the District of Columbia, presided over the Pigford case and ruled in the farmer's favor. Though he wouldn't farm again, Scott received some justice. After another decade of legal delay, he received his settlement of millions in 2012. With that money, Scott's daughter Willina bought their land back, the land where they had once raised and processed catfish, the land the banks had taken from them when they called in their loans. She recognized the unnamed acreage as her father's in a 2013 public land auction announcement in the local newspaper. She saw it and bought it, and Ed Scott signed the deed. By the time he passed in 2015, Ed Scott had found peace. So too had Edna Scott, who passed in 2016. Today, their daughter Walena and son Isaac remain in the Delta. Together, they're farming the land once more and working to open a teaching and learning center to keep the story of black farmers like Ed Scott alive. I think the land does offer hope, and we see that in the increase in, in black farmers and in the Delta and others. The paradox of that has been for so many years in Mississippi, the world's richest soil, most of the people living on it have been some of the poorest people in the country. So I think there's tr tremendous hope here, but I think there's got to be vision, there's got to be leadership for that to happen. Those bold moments in the 1980s when Scott went for catfish glory, are gone. But Ed Scott's legacy has much to teach us. Not about how to plow cotton or farm fish, though he did those jobs very well. Ed Scott's story speaks to what the American dream should mean, what it can mean. Many of us aim to own land or a business. More than that, Ed Scott and his family and friends in the Mississippi Delta illustrate the power of owning your economic destiny the pursuit of a truly free market. Y'all make y'all feel proud to be there? Yeah, we're proud to have a, a black businessman yeah. to open up a business for her. Because mm -hmm. we didn't have anything to do with We're glad he opened the place up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was fun days. I mean, we had some good days. Yeah, some good old days right there. All the good days. I yeah. wouldn't pay a day. Yeah. 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 Julian Rankin of Jackson, Mississippi, reported this episode. Bo York 
produced this episode. The University of Georgia Press has just published Julian's book. Catfish Dream is part of the series Southern Foodways Alliance Studies and Culture, People, and Place. We're proud of the book. You may learn more about the book and about Ed Scott and his legacy at catfishdream.org, a website that features archival materials and films. We encourage you to purchase a copy of Catfish Dream at your local independent bookseller. As ever, Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Monique Laborde. And managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Want to listen to or read or view more original stories by the SFA? Visit our website. That's southernfoodways.org. While there, please consider clicking that little donate button. That's the way you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the SFA and to help us continue our documentary and storytelling work. Thanks in advance for your support.